Okay, this, today is kind of uh, going to be our concluding one. Before we do, though, for those of you who are becoming new members of the church, I want to let you know one of the first Sundays in January, maybe the second one, we haven't firmed up, uh, we do like our new member reception, and everybody's become a new member. We have um, the rite of new members during worship, and then a reception during the fellowship hour. So I hope you'll be able to attend once, as soon as we get um, dates on that, let you know. But that's always a fun, fun time. All right. Today in our last session, this is one of my favorite ones actually, um, is what I call signs and seasons surrounded by God's story. So what we're going to talk about is some of the symbolism of, of our faith and of the church and then the church here and, the, and kind of the, the Christian calendar because there's so much in there that is conveying the message of the gospel where it's just really instilled in it. I want to start by talking about signs and how signs point to Significance. It's number one on the handout. And, uh, all right, you know I like my quizzes, so i got another quiz for you here. This one you, do, you can just shout out. I'm going to show you different logos and emblems. You tell me what they're for. First few are pretty doggone easy, which, so you better know. All right? Nike. How about this next one, though? Oh, LG, nice. Looking good. Well, that one. Under Armour. All right. Now, what about that one? That's the thing on the. Oh, right. That's called a Cairo. And uh, Cairo are two letters of the Greek alphabet. The X. Chi, or you know, sometimes you see it as Chi. Chi looks like Chai, right? C H I. Maybe if you were in a fraternity or you know somebody, right? And then Rho looks like a P, but that's the Greek. R. And um, the reason, I mean, you'll sometimes see me write this, and you see it, like Hans says, um, it's the first two letters of the Greek word for Christ. And so it's just a shorthand for Christ, Chi Rho. All right? Another one, what's the shell a symbol of? Baptism. Okay. Oh, I like this one. You guys ever see this one? Yeah. Okay, so first of all, what, what kind of bird is that? pelican, right? And so um, the, the legend has it, I don't know scientifically if this is verified or not, but that pelican, in order to feed her young, will actually take from her own side and feed the young, will, will feed them from herself, from her body. Not just nursing, but actually like physically tear flesh away, which is kind of gruesome. But from ancient times, this has therefore been used as a symbol of the Lord's Supper and how the Lord feeds and nourishes us from his very self. So Jesus would be the pelican in this uh, analogy and we would be the little ones there. So, interesting. You don't see that one as much anymore, but I have seen it on one or two altars through the ages. How about this guy? It's a trinity. So this is known as the Celtic knot. You guys all may or may not know that out here, the, the hedge out there is actually in the trinity symbol. Um, somebody said to me recently, they thought that it just was a smiley face. It's not a smiley face. It's the Trinity symbol. And then the last one, this is called Luther's Rose. And on the back of today's handout, uh, later if you want to look at this, I gave you the coloring page. If you want to um, fiddle with that during the Lions game or something, uh, it gives explanations to it, but that's uh, in, in many ways kind of conveys it. But these symbols are significant 
not only for us as we continue our walk of faith, but especially for those who uh, are the, the young among us. Found this uh, one day um, in, the, in the pew. Somebody said uh, prayers for worship. I don't even know who, who did this, right? Um, although I should from where it was in the pew. But all these different pictures, all these symbols. So you got the baptismal shell. You've got the, the grapes, the chalice, of course, the cross, symbol from the Kindle. And, you know, symbols connect with kids especially, right? But for all of us. And in that way, it's really a blessing for us, to, for our church, to be so filled with these symbols of the faith because they continue to convey the message. Not only the symbols, but also maybe the, the greatest symbol, of, apart from the cross itself, which is in our um, building, our physical space. And one thing, this was pointed out to me, I was a sociology major at MSU, how a town structure points to its values. And uh, I remember a, a professor saying, I think it was like urban sociology class, that one way to just a, a quick kind of rule of thumb to see what a city really values, to see what's the tallest building in town, right? That many times that's going to tell you a lot about what matters, what's the biggest deal, right? And at the time I was in East, East Lansing, and so... Anybody care to guess what's the tallest building in East Lansing? Not the Capitol. That'd be a good one. Something on campus. Something on campus is the dorms. Okay? So that makes sense, right? It's, it's a college campus that the dorms would be the highest. Hubbard Hall around the, the uh, east side of campus. Uh, but you see this throughout. There's a beautiful picture that was taken of Arcadia this fall, which I just, I love this. Do you guys see this? Um, guy took this picture from up at Inspiration Point. And it's one of the reasons I think people appreciate Arcadia is because we actually do have the tallest building in town. It's the church and the steeple. Like, that looks made up, but that's how it really is. Just the, only, just the steeple sticking up out of the trees. But of course, you go to a modern city like Detroit. There you've got, I mean, what is that, what's the big one there? It's GM building, right? And what's Detroit known as? Motor City. Motor City. Right? Oh. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Hockey Town. Right. So, didn't Kobo, did they knock, they knock Kobo down? Little Caesars. So, uh, you know, just the, the skyline itself tells a story about the city and what's important. I mean, if we were to look at pictures from 100 years ago in big cities from Detroit to New York, what was going to be the tallest in all of those would have been the the cathedrals and the church of spires, right? But nowadays... Yeah. The church spire is the only thing I can see. In the summer, the only building I can see. Oh, yeah. In Arcadia from my house. Sure, yeah, over on St. Pierre. Uh-huh. So then getting closer then into the, the church, a sanctuary's furnishings point to its faith. The furnishings point to its faith. And this is certainly the case here at Trinity. So... Just to, to stick with the three most significant ones. So first of all, you have the baptismal font. What do you notice about the baptismal font? Was there anything that stands out to you about its design or, or anything about it? It's made with wood from this area. Okay, it's made with wood from this area. Yeah, so there's a sense of that rootedness about it. Good. It's octagonal. Yes. And there is. So it's octagonal, which means it has eight sides, right? And the reason for that is um, this notion of eight being a, a special number in the eighth day. Because God 
created in seven days. But then the resurrection, spiritually speaking, metaphorically speaking, takes place on the eighth day. John actually kind of points to this in his gospel because Jesus is raised on what had been the first day of the week. But now it's, it's the eighth day, as it were. It's the beginning of new creation. Going back to the Old Testament, when uh, a baby was circumcised, it was on the eighth day because it was a sign of this new covenant, this new life, right? Um, so baptism then, picking up on that same symbolism, it, uh, it's not always, but many times, a font will have eight sides, suggesting precisely that. Another thing about the bap- baptismal font, which um, can underscore its symbolism, although it's not the case in our church, but many times the font will be at the entrance to the church building or the, the sanctuary, so that as you're coming in, you you know you can yeah you might um, take splash the water, and it's underscoring the fact that baptism is the sacrament of, of initiation, so to speak. So it brings you into the church, into the, the family of God. And even where we have it in the middle aisle, it's that constant remind, reminder there that this is the kind of the um, touchstone of our faith, of our identity uh, as God's beloved baptized children. Okay, so you've got the font. Then next you've got the pulpit, right? We've got our great pulpit here, which if you looked at those um, archival pictures that we shared earlier, you can see the pulpit used to be about three feet higher than it is now. They actually brought it down some, which is just incredible to me. I don't know, was there a, a pastor who was too high and mighty? They're like, we need to bring that guy down to size. I'm not sure. The front row is too much. Seriously, the front row. We need to just take those front pews out because it's, uh, Jeff, you know, it's a little bit better on the other side, but when you're right in front of it. In any case, um, a couple things about the pulpit. Um, it's harder to tell, but it's also octagonal. And so it provides both that theological and visual connection to the baptismal font. It's not all the way around because it's kind of cut off, but it would be a, you know, an octagon. The other thing, so it has that connection to the font, but the other thing about the pulpit, the design of it, it says design like the top of a chalice. This is a little bit hard to see, but notice there's the stem here, and then here, of course, is the, is the cut. It was more obvious when it used to be higher up. But that then provides a connection to communion, too. And all of that is trying to emphasize it. In Lutheran uh, theology and practice, we've always wanted to keep a strong connection between word and sacrament. Okay? So in Catholic churches, there's like a real strong emphasis on the sacrament, but the word is almost, can almost be like an afterthought. You know, the, the sermon, it's like, oh, that's not that big of a deal. What really matters is the sacrament. Conversely, in a lot of Protestant churches, there will be a real downplaying of the sacrament. It'll just be focused on the word. And in those cases, you know, it's like there isn't even an an altar or anything. There's just maybe a table out there. And the real focus is on, you know, the preacher's lectern, right? It it says a lot just with that um, design. Lutheran architecture traditionally has tried um, to tie it all together and to not put these things competing with each other, but complementary that God is working in the font, he's working in the pulpit, and he's working at the altar. Okay, so with that um, chalice sense, it ties us then to the Lord's Supper, and the altar is that place of, of the sacrament. It's the Lord's table. It's where he's handing out the goods. Uh, it's, where we're, it's, it's that core symbol of his presence in our midst. Now, interestingly, in our church, this varies among Lutheran churches, Sometimes the pulpit will be, or I'm sorry, the altar will be pulled out. They call freestanding altar. Other times it'll be like we have it here where it's against the east wall. 
both of, there's good theological reasons for both of them. When it's a freestanding altar, the pastor is able to, to stand behind the altar and face the people. And it emphasizes the fact that even when we're saying, you know, this is my body, this is my blood, that that's also proclamation. That it is, in a sense, kind of a, a sort of preaching, facing the people. Um, with the, when it's, uh, as we have it, the fancy term for it is ad orientum, or to the east, then it's able to emphasize the, the, the eschatological component of the, of the uh, sacrament, which is to say it's orientation toward the last things. Because we're facing the east as we receive it, we're all facing the same direction, so it's not pastor or presider over against the people, but we're all together facing toward the coming of the Lord and awaiting his coming. So there's pros and cons with, with both of them. But what I especially love with our particular architecture and furnishings here is the theology of the three pictures of Christ that we have right there in the chancel. Can you see all three? You've got the crucifix, you've got the painting, and then you have the stained glass. And here, this ties together these kind of three movements of our Lord's ministry for us. So you have Christ dying, and then you have Christ ascending, resurrected, and ascending to the Father. And then, while at the literal level, that stained glass is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's, he's praying, you know, not my will, but your will be done. Theologically, we can also see that as Jesus interceding before us, before the Father. And scriptures talk this way in Romans 8, in Hebrews 9, and other places. talks about how Jesus ever lives to plead for you and me. He's continually interceding on our behalf. So in this way, we see Jesus in his humiliation and in his exaltation, where he continues to live and to plead for you and me. Isn't that cool? It's all right there in a span of like 15 feet. Pretty sweet. But that's the power of good symbolism and art, of architecture. It's able to convey all of these things in a way that goes beyond just, you know, connecting with, what is it, our left brain or right brain? I get those mixed up. Um, with the, the side words, just rationality and reason. Like, it's not just that. It's also that kind of affective and emotional side, too. There's even a, a, a hymn stanza built on the rock. It says, uh, let me see if I can get it for here stands the font before our eyes, telling how God has received us. The altar recalls Christ's sacrifice and what his supper here gives us. Here sound the scriptures that proclaim Christ yesterday, today the same and evermore our Redeemer. Pretty sweet. So it's, it's just accenting that font, pulpit, altar, boom, God present for us. Questions or reflections on the sanctuary, symbolism, architecture, any of that kind of stuff? Pretty cool. Yeah, Hans? Uh, one, the crucifix. There yeah. are some churches that will not yep. have a crucifix that's right christ is risen right but we have all three yeah yep so th this is true so um we use crucifix which um the distinction there is a crucifix is a cross that has the corpus the the body of jesus on it whereas like you say other christians will say oh our cross doesn't have it and i i get where they're coming at from that but just to say jesus isn't on the cross could just mean that he's buried and dead like it's not right. you know not being there doesn't necessarily um translate with the crucifix, it's more like the good parallel is thinking about um, a, a crash, or if you have a nativity scene at your house. 
Now, you've got that nativity scene. You probably have a little baby Jesus in the, the manger, right? It'd be weird if you didn't, but, you know, my manger, it doesn't have Jesus in there because Jesus is not a baby anymore. He's risen, so I've got an empty manger. No, nobody says that. It's the, the nativity is a devotional aid that helps to bring our mind to the fact that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Did he continue to be a baby? No, right? We, we watched that clip from Ricky Bobby, right? Little eight-pound, six-ounce baby wearing his golden fleece pajamas. No, he's a man. He has a beard. He's risen, ascended, and glorified. So likewise, we would say, while Jesus is no longer on the cross, he is not dead, seeing him on that crucifix reminds us that he is Christ for us. He is ever and always the crucified one, which I think is a great comfort in our suffering, in our struggles, to know that he continues even in his resurrected flesh. I mean, you think about it, even after he rose from the dead, he still had his scars, right? He didn't just move beyond that. And in fact, what they do say, are you looking for Christ, the crucified one? Uh, he ever re remains the crucified one. So, yeah, good question. That's the first one. Yes, Second oh, good. Question, uh, what are the candles on the, in the woodwork? If you look at the altar. Oh. So, you're talking about like this stuff up here? No, down below. The three there are four candles in the woodwork. Where? Oh, in between, there? In between, in between the, the pictures. The, the, there? Oh, by, by the blue. See? Yeah. Right, right. Your finger almost right on top of them. Okay. I haven't noticed that before. Or, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm open to, to thoughts. Um, so, I'll let you finish. Well, okay. But the other thing that I do know or have a thought about more is you also have like these blooms, flowers up on the, um, the top of here of what's called the rear dough. And I think that's a callback to like Aaron and his uh, blossoming staff, which was there in, um, in the Ark of the Covenant, but I can't say for certain. And honestly, I hadn't even noticed the candles in the woodwork before until you mentioned that, Hans. So that's interesting. I mean, candles, of course, I've always had a, that symbolism of um, the presence of Christ. And sometimes there's two, sometimes there's six, sometimes there's more. Um, but yeah. How old is the? I've always been curious. How old is the painting? Yeah. There, like, is that a rich, 135 I, years old as well? It or? could be. I mean, it goes back a long way. The oldest pictures that we have of the church have it there, so it goes back really far. What's interesting, I may have mentioned this before, but our mother church is actually not from Manistee or Traverse City. Our mother church is actually in Milwaukee. Right. Um, it's Trinity Lutheran in Milwaukee, and. Uh, that, that building suffered a fire a few years ago and much of it burned, but they're actually restoring it and rebuilding it according to its original specifications. If you were to go there, you would see that Trinity Arcadia almost looks like a, a smaller version of Trinity Milwaukee, and they have the same painting. So I think it was like the same, I know it was the same architect that did both churches and probably the same artist as well. So yeah, it could be. I mean, but the pews, all of this stuff, these furnishings are original. And like Jeff said, it's bird's eye maple. Bird's eye maple, yeah. You're familiar with the wood? Well, I mean, I know that, but I don't know a lot about the wood. Go ahead. So, bird's eye maple is like, you see the beauty of it, right? Yeah. But if you saw that tree, you would it would be ugly. Oh, interesting. You Like, bird's eye maple comes from the ugliest trees. Ooh, it'll, that'll it's preach. it's so beautiful inside. Yeah. Like, so look up some bird's eye maple. Cool, I will do that. Like, do we still have them around here? Have they all been... Yeah, they're yeah. regular maple trees, and, and it's the gnarly. Oh, okay. 
Maple gotcha. Like city maples are like um I guess you would say a meadow. Yeah. Maple might become bird's eye more likely than a forest maple where they stretch out and become Sure. Like that would be the lumber used for the flooring. Gotcha. Where it's all it's easy. Sister trees. Right. The wood is basically the same. One is straight and clean looking and the other one is narrowed up and yeah. Beautiful. I mean, oh, they're both cool. Beautiful in their own way. Sure, right. One's pristine looking, yeah. and the other one is all over the place. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. No, I did not know that. So that that like to me is mm -hmm. there's a lot of symbolism with what kind of wood you. Pick. Yeah, it's that's good. I like that. That's really good. Like the it's oak on the bottom of the um, pulpit chalice. Uh huh. Where where like yeah. and that's for structural reasons. Sure. Oak stronger. Underneath it's stronger. And yeah. Wow. Cut, so. Cool. And you could probably get somebody that's more versed in wood to go through and like uh -huh. find the other types sure. too that might have more than I know. No, but that's sweet. That's so good. Yeah, there's a lot there. And I mean, like you say, even just the, the thought that God, uh, that in this place, this house of God, that we would use some of the, that wood that outwardly looks like it has all these imperfections, how it's redeemed and it has that inner beauty that then is brought out mm -hmm. that's sweet there's some spalted stuff around that yeah stuff that is like aged maple you sure it down and it starts to rot a little bit and hmm. it makes it even more beautiful oh okay it puts color in it puts yeah color. The, 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 so in that bird's eye yeah you see like black lines that started to rot oh huh. and then you stop it yeah in that stage and it has like another beauty to it wow so like yeah there could be symbolism with that. All sure. Oh, we'll go on all day. This is great. Okay, then. Well, let's, uh, let's pivot a little bit. And now I want to talk some about the church year. So having talked about the that symbolism of the sanctuary and um, the furnishings and all of that, um, let's talk about the, the church year. And this is definitely something that I get on my um, soapbox about a little bit. Because in our culture, like you see like Google. If you ever use Google... Every day, pretty much, they've got their Google Doodle, right? Where it's like some random day, holiday, so-called, that you had no idea about. And when it's Easter or Christmas, are you going to see anything about? No, of course not, right? But it's always some other day. And maybe if you ever listen like, to, to the radio, it'll talk about all these, the national day calendar, where every day in the year is some just off-the-wall sort of thing. So just to take a random week, March 25th, National Lobster Newberg Day, National Medal of Honor Day, National Tolkien Reading Day. I can get on board with that one. The 26th, Epilepsy Awareness Day, also known as Purple Day. National Nougat Day, all right, for all of you Three Musketeers fans. And for those of you who aren't, National Spinach Day, this is the same one. On the 27th, National Joe Day and National Spanish Paella Day. Okay. And then the 28th, that's a big one. Black Forest Cake Day, yes. National Something on a Stick Day, corndog fans. National Weed Appreciation Day, all right? And then the National American Diabetes Association Alert Day, the fourth Tuesday in March. Oh, my gosh. And on and on it goes every single day. And why, then, does the world insist on these pseudo-holidays? Do you have thoughts on this? Like, why is it that we have to have a national day calendar and there's got to be just something every day? What do you think is behind that. That's caused the Roman Empire to fall. What do you mean? 
they had so many holidays oh. that they were required to yeah. have a feast or whatever. Yeah. That it was, you know, well, gee, we nobody's ever working. No one's ever worked. We're all got a holiday with us. Yeah. Celebrate one emperor or another. Right. Although most people don't get off National Spanish Paella Day. Yeah, but exactly. uh, Okay, so there's, there's that side of it. What else? Yeah. It's <laughs> good. Not to put too fine a point on it, but in your sad, sorry life, at least you can look forward to National Black Forest Cake Day. I, I feel like it's a self-importance thing. Everybody sure. likes something and they want it to be as important as everybody else's yep. thing. Yep, it's got to be. And you're just elbowing it all out. Um, we, just, we have this deep-seated in our, our human nature. Like There has to be some kind of special days, some holy days. Um, and so in our contemporary culture, not talking about religious days, feast days, what are some of the high holy days of our contemporary culture? Super Bowl. Super Bowl Sunday. Christmas. Christmas, but not like Jesus Christmas, but Santa Claus Christmas. Yeah. Fourth of July. Fourth of July is a really big one. All out party. Halloween. Seriously. Yeah, Halloween has almost surpassed many of the other holidays. New Year's is a big one. New Year's, too. Where these are things that, oh, 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 the one that always gets me. It's coming up this week. Thanksgiving. Not Thanksgiving. Black Friday, so-called. And especially, to me, that's so telling. Kind of like the architecture thing we looked at before. Because the church here already has a Black Friday, don't we? Good Friday, right? That's Black Friday. When we, we put black on the altar and everything. Um, but no, that's Black Friday. That's when businesses can get in the black, I guess, is the idea behind it. It's a high holy day. Uh, but for us, our, the church year is how we live by sacred time, by God's story. Because in Christ, God has redeemed time as his good gift. Time isn't something that we have to fear. It was for the ancient Greeks. They're, they uh, personified it as the god Kronos. You know, it's the Greek word for time. And Kronos was this devouring monster, swallowed everybody up. But now time has been redeemed and repurposed to God's good purposes. So um, go to Galatians chapter 4. And we see how, how this is true. Hearing the elevator music coming from somewhere must be left. It must be a TV. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, maybe it's helping a baby sleep. That's good. Okay, Galatians 4, uh, verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Jesus comes in the fullness of time. I love that phrase, the fullness of time. He himself said it at the outset of his ministry, Mark chapter 1. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the time itself becomes an agent of redemption, sanctification. And Greek, helpfully, has two different words for time. It has the word kairos, or kairos, actually, is how it's pronounced, and then chronos. 
And these two kinds of times are really significant for understanding God's work in the world. So kairos is infinite time. It's time as viewed from that perspective of faith. Whereas chronos is finite. It's time in the way that people are always trying to to hold on to it. I'm saving time. It's like, oh, really? So when are you spending that time that you saved? Well, I'm not sure. I've got it in my time bank somewhere. Uh, From the Kairos perspective, it's more like a season, Um, whereas Kronos is looking at a calendar, right? What's this day and that day and that day? From a Kairos perspective, time is more malleable. It's more fluid. It's not so much like we're, we're adding it up. That's why for Kairos, time is qualitative rather than quantitative. Kronos is always that way of how can we measure time? How can we divvy it up? I mean, the notion that there's 24 hours in a day, that each hour has 60 minutes, each minute has 60 seconds, that's not actually like an obvious thing, right? That's not in in the Bible, like, and there shall be this many, you know, hours is how you should divide it up. It's the way that humans have looked at it and made our clocks in order to to make it transferable so that we can have it be consistent. Kairos perspective says, you know what, we're rolling with the seasons and this time of year, days are shorter, right? And we're not going to try to just, how, how can we overcome time? From a Kronos perspective, time is an enemy to be overcome. From a Kairos perspective, it's more like a friend to be, um, to be worked with. Um, Kairos it speaks of an appointed time. Whereas Kronos, people use this phrase, it drives me crazy, real time. It's happening in real time, as opposed to fake time. Plato, who I, I don't always quote or agree with, but in this I think he's right. That's, that Kairos perspective on time, it's the moving image of eternity. Beautiful phrase. Henry Ford, his view on time, one damn thing after another. <laughs> so I think a lot of people look at time. Again, time as an enemy, something that we've got to to fight against. But instead, from this biblical perspective, from the perspective of the gospel, time is chronos, kairos, I should say, not chronos, where now we recognize it's the the fulfillment and the fullness of time in Jesus. And of course, there's ways in which our calendars still confess this kairos centrality of Jesus. I mean, how still to this day, what year is it? 2023, Anno Domini, A.D., the year of our Lord. Now I realize that's been futzed with in the last few years. Now we call it, what do we call it? C.E., right? It's the, it's the common era. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, we, we just, why, do you, why don't you date it from the day that you do? Oh, we just picked an arbitrary one. No reason. Certainly not because of the Son of God being born or anything like that. Oh, okay. Um, our very calendars still speak to that centrality, that kairos reality. And more to the point, our church calendars, what's called the church year, it attunes us to God's rhythm, his work in our lives and in the world. Uh, well, let's see, maybe you know this one. Um, quoting from the Bible, from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Why don't we turn, turn there? Thank you very much. All right. Ecclesiastes 3. Familiar passage. But this is where 
Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, is talking about this kind of kairos time, time for everything, season for everything. Everything there's a season and time for every matter under heaven. Time to be born, a time to die, to plant, to pluck up what's planted. Time to kill and a time to heal. Time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. Time to keep and a time to cast away. Time to tear and a time to sow. Time to keep silence and a time to speak. Time to love and a time to hate. Time for war and a time for peace. What this lovely passage speaks to for me is that time and living with the church here is part of living into that rhythm, that back and forth, to everything there's a season and a time for everything under heaven. And going all the way back to Genesis, God says that his reason for creating the sun and moon and stars was for, uh, for, si- for signs and seasons. Okay? That the, the very purpose of it was to create that kind of, of rhythm. God's created us to live into rhythm with him. The church here helps us to keep that rhythm the whole year through. Otherwise, we just succumb to the, the tyranny of national day-day uh, rather than the reality of God's redemption for us. Okay. Uh, I've quoted from this book before by Tish Harrison Warden, The Liturgy of the Ordinary. She has a, a great chapter on the church year in it. She says, in the liturgical year, another name for the church year, there's never celebration without preparation. First we wait, we mourn, we ache, we repent. We aren't ready to celebrate until we acknowledge over time and through ritual and worship that we and this world are not yet right and whole. Before Easter, we have Lent. Before Christmas, we have Advent. We fast, then we feast. We prepare and we practice waiting. There's that rhythm, that back and forth. Now, to ask an obvious question, how does our world do with waiting? (laughs) And how do we do? I mean, for any of us. Like, have you had this experience recently where like you're on the internet and you you know you punch in a, a web address or whatever and it, it goes to it and it takes like three seconds and you're like what in the world is happening why is this taking so long or god forbid you get the like especially if you're a mac person you get the spinning rainbow of death so you know it's like oh lord why how long oh lord how long you know it's like 10 seconds but we've just become so habituated, so acculturated to everything happens right away, right now. But I want to I share with you guys a new spiritual discipline that I've taken up. Okay? And I, I can't say that it's been transformative or life-changing for me, although it, it has some corollary benefits, which is, I shouldn't record this, I've started driving the speed limit. It's true. I've started driving the speed limit. I, and I mean, still going to the, the speed limit. Like I'm not insane. I'm not going five miles under the speed limit or something like that. But I've been driving the speed limit uh, just as like this kind of, in reflecting on this sort of stuff, like trying to work out that sense of hurry that's always there. Like, you know what? I'm just going to just go with whatever the posted speed limit is. And I, I got to tell you, people blow past me constantly. Like, nobody ever has wanted to drive the speed limit. And it feels slow. Like, it really does feel slow because people are going past you. But two corollary benefits from it. One, I have not been pulled over at all. I'm waiting for a cop to pull me over and, like, pat me on the back. Like, well done, good and faithful servant. That hasn't happened. But the other thing 
as my gas mileage has improved too. Like, oh, oh, that's good. But I really feel like, I don't know, it, it seems like it's working on me in some ways, but that's a digression. Try it, I'd be interested to hear your, uh, your take on that too. But in a world where we're relentlessly hurrying, you heard of this book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry? Uh, it's a great title, and it's like this sense of we're trying to get hurry out of us to be able to wait. Church year helps us live in that rhythm. Number six, the church year immerses us in God's story. So it's the, the story of the gospel now as it's played out throughout the year. And it's interesting, in Mark chapter 1, the way Mark starts, it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And uh, people have different perspectives on this. Like, it seems like a, a strange way to start. It's, it's an incomplete sense, a sentence fragment, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But some think that this is a callback to the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament and, and ancient times, um, it was understood that the first phrase or verse of, of a book would be the title of the book. So what we call Genesis is in Hebrew known as Bereshith, which is the Hebrew phrase which means in the beginning. That's the title of the book. And on and on it goes. And so some people have suggested or postulated that Mark, working from within that tradition, says that the title of his book and the story that he tells is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, that raises the question, like that's a strange title, the beginning of the gospel. But it's suggested that perhaps his point is that the story he tells Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection, that that's just the beginning of the gospel. That now this story is still unfolding in our own day. You can take or leave that interpretation, but I think theologically it checks out. And it makes me think, of course, of the Lord of the Rings. Um, this famous line, Samwise, um, talking and kind of explaining through this really, during this really dark moment, him and Frodo. And he says, why, sir, I never thought of that before. We've got You've got some of the light of it in that star glass that the lady gave you. Why, to think of it, we're in the same tale still. It's going on. Don't the great tales never end? <laughs> Sam Wise, way of putting it, the double negative in there. But this is the point that we are still living in the unfolding of the story of God's work in the world. Right? We're in the middle of it. We know how it ends. He's given us a glimpse of that, a foretaste of it. In the book of Revelation, we get to see a picture of it. We're not there yet. But we're in the midst of that story. It's his story that's playing out. The church year then instills that story through our calendars, through these festivals, through these seasons. It's a way of us immersing ourselves and making sure that we live by God's time, by that Kairos time, rather than just the chronos of, you know, checking in and all right, the tick, tick, tick of the watch. Right? Does that make sense? And to me, I think it makes all the difference in the world. So then let's get into the details of the church year specifically. Because what the church year does, uh, immerses us in God's story, and I would drill down on it even further to say that the church year recounts the story of God's kingdom. Recounts the story of God's kingdom, his reign and rule. <clears throat> and so one way to, to think about the unfolding of the church year, which actually, it doesn't start in January. Anybody know when the church year starts? With Advent. With Advent. So actually, this next Sunday, next week, is the last Sunday of the church year. And so the, the new church year begins with Advent, which this year will be the first Sunday in, uh, in December. It varies a little bit 
because this is inside baseball more than you need to know, but it, uh, it's the closest Sunday to the Feast of St. Andrew, who was the first of the disciples. Feast of St. Andrew is November 30th, and so whichever Sunday is closer, uh, the one before, one after, that's the first Sunday in Advent, and there it goes from there. There you have it. Um, and so a way of kind of thinking about it is like a cereal. Okay? Maybe you've listened to that podcast before, the cereal, or familiar with these sorts of things. Where it's, I mean, it's, a, it's an old idea. It used to do this on the radio and in magazines and so forth. A serial. It's a story that is unfolding in parts and ongoing. In a sense, you could think of the church here as like a serial, okay? Not like bran flakes, but S-E-R-I-A-L, right? That kind of, of serial. It's that story that's unfolding week by week. And to do another Lord of the Rings shout out, it's the story of the return of the king, Right? It's King Jesus, uh, his coming among us, his work, and then looking forward ultimately to his return. So just briefly, let me walk us through these seasons of the church here. If you have questions, stop me here. So this, this is the, the kind of six main movements of the church here. And we haven't even gotten into the fact that there are these particular feast days along the way, like the Feast of St. Andrew. I mean, so all of the disciples have their, their feast days, and there's other ones along the way. But here's the first, the, the main movements. So you have Advent. And Advent is all about the promise of the king. It's anticipating, looking forward to his, the commemoration of his first coming and the anticipation of his second coming. Advent is a Latin word that means coming. Okay? And so it, it really has those um, dual sides. Actually, we would even say three comings. So his coming in history, when he came among us um, as, a, as a child in his ministry, his, uh, his coming now, mysteriously through word and sacrament, he's present with us by his spirit, and then ultimately his coming in glory or majesty, when he'll come again to judge the living and the dead. Advent is about looking forward to that. Advent is my favorite season of the church here. I love it. It bums me out years like this one where it's really short. It's about as short as it can be. And actually the fourth Sunday of Advent is December 24th. So please know, December 24th, in the morning, it's still Advent. Christmas doesn't start until Christmas Eve because that kind of biblical reckoning of time, a day starts in the evening, and so it starts. But if you come to church in the morning on Christmas Eve day, it's still Advent. Then you've got, of course, Christmas, which isn't just a day. It's a season. Oh, man, okay. I've got, I'm getting all my soapboxes out here today. Twelve days of Christmas. When, is, when do the 12 days of Christmas start? Do you know? Christmas Day, 12 days day before Christmas. Christmas. So, okay, so... The Right, so, okay, so the way that it, I think culturally, to the extent that people have any idea about this, the assumption is that it's the 12 days before Christmas. Makes sense. Sometimes I've even seen the first 12 days of December or something like this. People use it now primarily for commercial reasons, right? Like, here's the 12 days of deals at uh, Menards. Okay, whatever. Um, the 12 days of Christmas actually start with Christmas and goes up to January 6th, which is what day in the church year? Epiphany. Epiphany. We're getting into deep cuts now here. So um, those 12 days, that's the season of Christmas. It's not just a single day. It's a whole season in which we're able to continue our celebrations. And there's different ways that you can still practice this. We've tried to, to hold on to this in our family because we're weird and I'm a liturgical geek. Um, we don't do this as much as we used to, but it used to be the case that we didn't open all of our Christmas presents on Christmas Day 
but we spread things out through the whole season. Each day we would let the kids open a gift. Sometimes it would kind of peter out around like January 2nd or something like that. And then we'd save one for Epiphany, January 6th, which historically, that was the big day. January 6th, um, still for Eastern Orthodox Christians, that's when they celebrate Christmas. Uh, Epiphany for us is more about the coming of the Magi. What we do do here at this church, um, which I love, is the Twelfth Night Party. And so, and, you know, Shakespeare had his Twelfth Night. Um, twelfth Night is the last night of the, the 12 days of Christmas. So January 5th, mark it on your calendar, save the day, we'll do Twelfth Night Party. We get together, we usually do some trivia. We've got king cake, which is that delicious cake. It's like a coffee cake that has a small baby in it. A little bit weird. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, strangely, the children always manage to find it. They sneak in there, looking through. They're clawing through all the cake. Where are we going to find it? And then you get to be the king for the night. It's just we have the mulled wine, and we sing carols, and I love it. It's one of my favorite things we do all year long. And it kind of underscores and emphasizes the fact that we're still celebrating the birth of the king. Um, then you've got the season of Epiphany. Okay? And Epiphany is a Greek word that means manifestation or revelation. And so it's about the revelation, revealing of Jesus as the king. And so um, commonly in this season of the church year, this is when you have stories like the changing of the water into wine. You have Jesus' baptism, where you have the voice of the, of the Father speaking over him. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, where Jesus is being manifested, epiphanied to the world. Um, it's another green season in the church year also. <laughs> Um, and it can be variable how long it's going to be. Lent, of course, is the season about the suffering of the king. You know, it kind of culminates with Jesus' temptation. Start, the first Sunday in Lent is always about the temptation of Jesus. And Lent, how many days is Lent? 40, 40 days. Not including Sundays. Not including Sundays. It's true, because sometimes people will, you know, figure out the math. and like, ah, it doesn't add up. It's because the Sundays are not included in Lent. And why would that be, liturgically, theologically speaking? Because every Sunday, even in Lent, is like a little Easter. And so it's not reckoned among those 40 days. Always starts with Ash Wednesday is the beginning of Lent, and then 40 days, um, save for Sundays, up until Easter. Okay? Um, and during that season, you know, it's a season of, of penitence, reflecting on the, the suffering of our Lord Jesus, the temptations that he endured, and... Still, still to this day. And that's where, to use that phrase, it is almost like with those 40 days of Lent, we are in real time with the biblical time. Especially this is the case after Easter. where So, okay, now Easter is the celebration of the victory of the king. How long does Easter go for? 50 days. 50 days. Okay, so it's longer than Lent. Good, right? 40 days for the suffering and temptation. 50 days of celebration. But 40 days after Easter is... Ascension Day, which that's where it is, just tracking right along with the Gospels, because we're told that it was 40 days after his resurrection that Jesus ascended. The church year keeps that. Now, here at Trinity, some churches will still have worship services. I discovered some years ago that you can have a worship service on Ascension Day, and like three people will show up. But if you have a picnic and you fly kites, a lot of people will show up. So that's what we do. And we still do like a little service with it, um, in conjunction with it, but we go out to the front yard, we barbecue, and again, that's one of my favorite celebrations we have each and every year. And the weather, you know, it's mid to late May. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not, but always a good time. And then finally, you get to Pentecost, the gift of the king, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
And the whole season of Pentecost really becomes about the work of the Spirit in the church within us individually as believers and then the church corporately. All of that to say, what that's doing is it's bringing us into the story of God so that our lives are formed by his story rather than the, the stories of the world or just the individual things that happen to be going on in our lives. We're able to look to and turn to God's work in the world historically, but still ongoing now. Questions about the church here? Last one. Yeah. Uh, Pentecost falls in the same was one of the Jewish holidays. Yeah, that's true. Feast of Weeks. Uh, Feast of Weeks, that's right. So I was wondering why they changed was it to be less Jewish? Why did what? Who changed what? From Feast of Weeks to Pentecost. Oh, well, I mean, it, just, it so happened that Pentecost was when the Holy Spirit was outpoured. And so it became that festival. Like you say, it was a Jewish festival already, but it became kind of transmuted into, now it had a new meaning, the coming of the Spirit. It's been said that um, the Feast of Weeks also commemorated when God came down on Sinai with the giving of the law. And if that's the case, then there's a neat kind of um, parallel with that with Pentecost, that now God coming down again, the person of his spirit, not in order to give the law, but so that the law might be written on our hearts um, as he dwells inside of us. So something cool there. Is there anything related to five? There's there. Yeah, it's 50 days. Okay. Yep. And so, yep, no. Good. So Pentecost is 50 days. Seven weeks plus a day. Seven weeks plus a day. That's right. Yep. So I love the church here. I could geek out on this kind of stuff all all day long. Um, we try to do, like, we bring church here home. We um, Anne likes to do kind of uh, liturgical interior decorations, you know, <laughs> where we've got runners for our table that correspond to the, the colors of the church year. And, of course, with um, Advent, a lot of people are familiar with the Advent wreath, um, but there's other things that you can do like that for the other seasons as well. And I think it's just an awesome way, especially with kids, but for any of us, to really a- allow the, God's truth to be our daily reality. It's awesome. Well, herein ends our roots of faith. I'm so grateful that you guys have been with us for seven weeks in a day. Uh, it's been our own kind of Pentecost. No, I don't know exactly how long it's been. But this was week seven. Um, thank you for uh, being with us throughout this. I hope you found it edifying and encouraging that your roots are deeper in the Lord and his truth, what he has done for us. Um, every time I revisit this material, I, it, it fills my cup again because just getting back to basics, remembering the essentials, the roots of who we are and what God has done for us is such a gift. So, Thank you, guys. God be with you. Let me uh, close this with a word of prayer. Dear Father, thank you that you have rooted us in your son, Jesus, and that apart from him, we can't do anything, but with him, all things are possible. Lord, we pray that uh, rooted in him, we would continue to bear fruit and grow, that you'd be at work in each and every one of our hearts. Thank you for these weeks that we've been able to enjoy together, the learning that we've had. We pray, Lord, um, that it wouldn't be forgotten, but that you would continue your good work in us through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys.